Welcome to The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use technology to increase their power. Today, we're talking about the end of privacy. At least that was the title of the New York Times article about Clearview, a facial recognition company that's under fire for scraping millions of pictures from across the internet and using it to build a facial recognition tool that their clients, namely private companies or law enforcement, can use. But Clearview are a massive facial recognition company, massive primarily in terms of their database, which they claim is filled with almost 3 billion images they've scraped from all over the internet, including Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and millions of other sites. I'm here with Gus, who normally hosts the podcast, which I have stolen. So Gus, thank you for letting me do this very minor crime. It's my absolute pleasure. And don't worry, I'm not judging you at any point in this discussion. <laughs> um, so what do you already know about Clearview? Well, what I know is, as you described, it was a New York Times article, and it was this company, Clearview, and the way that um, Cashmere Hill exposed and covered the story and um, had our entire sector looking and wondering, why aren't we doing something about this company? Exactly. I imagine one of the first questions pretty much everyone has when they find out about Clearview is, did they get my face? Um, and Luckily, we're based in the EU. Um, me and Gus are privacy For international now. is. For now. Because <laughs> we're in the UK. Uh, that was Brexit shade. But under EU data protection law and under an increasing number of data protection laws around the world, you can ask a company, in this case Clearview, what information they have on you and they're legally obliged to answer. That is exactly what our colleague Eva did. So basically what I received is like a two-page PDF and essentially all there is in the PDF is an initial disclaimer that says uh, in order to complete your request we have generated this report containing Clearview search results for the image that you shared with us which is labeled original search image below search results image are enumerated with corresponding public web page titles and URL below. That's it. That's as much like sort of text that there is. So it's like three lines. Uh, now, the rest of this PDF is pictures of me that they have scraped from uh, various places in the internet. And there's an index for each picture, like where they took it from. And it's a really weird thing to watch because there's just like, you know, pictures of me from uh, various conf conferences I've given. There's pictures of me that appeared on social media. Uh, there's like screenshots of uh, from YouTube videos uh, of me. A and the last picture, uh, the last picture that there is, is actually uh not me it's another woman who i mean i suppose you could argue looks like me i i don't think she terribly lo looks like me she, she's blonde with blue eyes where i'm brunette with dark eyes but the the picture comes from her vk which i understand is a is a russian social media equivalent of facebook i think anyway the, the point is actually when they're listing the index of the picture the, you know they, they give me her name it makes me think if this like woman just like landed on my dsar report like is my face also landing on other people's uh, dsar reports when eva says dsar report she means data subject access request report 
A data subject access request, or a DSAR as we'll keep calling them throughout this podcast, is the legal name of the request you're making of a company when you ask for your personal data. So there are two problems here. The first is that either got someone else's data and what that suggests is that Clearview's facial recognition is, whilst it's good, it got lots of pictures of either, um, it's not perfect. It's also worth noting um, Eva, our colleague, is a white woman and facial recognition in general has been found to perform better on white people than it does on black people who tend to be misidentified more frequently. So that Eva's report had a mistake on it suggests something about Clearview's like broader facial recognition, which is that it isn't perfect, which is both a good thing in terms of the end of privacy and a terrible thing in terms of police forces are using it. Um, it's already exists in the world. It's not a theoretical discussion. This company has already sold access to this database and this tool, and clearly it's not perfect. The second thing that's interesting is the report itself. We think it's fairly close to the report that law enforcement get when they search Clearview, and that means whoever uses this system, they don't just get your name, they get your whole online life and everyone you're connected to. And it gets worse. Part of the way that Clearview has built the facial recognition matching aspect of their tool is by using the data that they've scraped to train their algorithm to practice matching, essentially. And the more images they have, in theory, the better it gets. The last time I remember hearing about this company, VK, and, um, and facial recognition, I think it was back in, um, in 2016, where uh, somebody developed an app that was able to if you um, if you if you took a picture of somebody, you could then um, identify their account on social media on this VK social media, and I, I think um, I might have the details of this not exactly right, but essentially there uh, this was used to target women, uh, particularly women in in uh, the porn industry, that they would uh, take a photo of, uh, of the woman. Uh, do the search on social media, find her account, and then distribute uh, to followers of her account imagery and uh, other such things related to uh, their porn um, career. And it was essentially used to harass people. And so social media were supposed to be a little bit more aware of these types of risks of other parties using data and using the interfaces in certain ways to abuse and exploit people. And uh, from what I understand, uh, that service on VK no longer exists. And my understanding also is that um, Twitter was getting better at this whole idea of allowing its service to be scraped and other social media were supposed to be very good at protecting their user base. Um, I'm very disappointed to see with this Clearview case and particularly with what Eva is talking about that this is not at all the case. I was really, aside from the, the sort of like presence of this other woman, I was just very creeped out by the idea that there is a company that I had never heard of that's just using images of me and images of my face to train their AI. I, I just thought that was really deeply disturbing. It is creepy, right? That they've stolen pictures and they're using them to get competitive advantage out of it. Because it's not like they've built this tool that they think is you know magically philanthropic and they're giving it away for free they're making a ton of money off of it it's this continued pattern of public private partnerships where companies can get away with things 
that they shouldn't be getting away with legally, but they're still getting away with it. And they can do more things than uh, government agencies can, but then the government agencies do an end run over their own uh, regulatory regimes by working with these private sector companies. The good news is if you want to find out what Clearview has on you, DSARs aren't that hard. But yeah, that was my first experience. I've now actually done a lot more uh, because I just f- figured that this is actually an easy process and kind of an, a nice way to force company to hand over information that they have about you in a fairly short timeline, actually, because they do have to reply within a month. So basically to send a DSA, you just have to email the company uh, with who you are and the information you want. In the UK, the Information Commissioner's Office has a couple of really handy templates, the links to which will be in the description. And literally, that's all you have to do. Except there's one little problem. You kind of have to live in a country where you have this right. That's true. The downside here is that you have to be in a country with the relevant legal framework, or you have to hope that Clearview or any other company you're trying to DSA don't realise where you're based. But an increasing number of countries are passing data protection laws that include this right. You also have the right, again, only under some data protection laws, such as the GDPR, to tell companies to delete your data, and we'll include information on how to make that request below. But Clearview do more than scrape data. They make their money by selling access to the database and their facial recognition algorithm tool to police forces, they claim, all over the world. But it can be really hard to work out which ones. And both police forces and companies are rarely as transparent as they should be about what tech they're buying. Um, and Clearview and other companies like it are rarely as transparent as they should be about who they're working with and who they're selling tech to. We spoke to Anne Kavukian about what happened in Canada. So when we learned about this here in Ontario, you go to the various, the Federal Privacy Commissioner of Canada goes to various police forces and there's good news and bad news. The bad news was a lot of the police forces, the law enforcement agencies were quietly using this. They had been pitched by Clearview AI, uh, you know, emails to them at first for free and then they paid. And then they just quietly did this without the permission of the head, the chief, the police chief. So when the police chief started learning about this, um, for example, in Toronto, Canada, which is where I reside, uh, Chief Mark Saunders, he immediately said, this is outrageous and he stopped it. And that's the good news that a lot of these police chiefs, once they learned about it and that their police officers were quietly using this, they put their foot down and they said, absolutely not. And Clearview got booted out of Canada. It's the good news, Clearview, we don't need it. Policing is becoming increasingly technology oriented because it's, it's deemed cheaper and it's deemed more effective. And it's really nice to hear an example like from Canada where um, they rejected the technological uh, move to essentially do policing on, on the cheap by using tech like um, Clearview AI. And I would love to say that that there is momentum behind such a rejection. The underlying system that Clearview built is a facial recognition system. And facial recognition has come under a lot of scrutiny fairly recently for all sorts of reasons. One of which is that a lot of it just isn't that good. I think it needs to be banned. Um, here in, in uh, the United States, for example, a number of uh, cities are, are outright banning uh, facial recognition. 
started in San Francisco, and it spread all across um, the United States. The number of false positives to begin with are so high. A conservative estimate um, done in the UK, where they have you know surveillance cameras everywhere and use facial recognition, 81% of the facial recognition matches were false positives. So you're saying, oh yeah, we got this guy, and you didn't get the guy. You falsely identified someone else who was a law-abiding citizen as being the bad guy, the person of interest. And that brings upon a nightmare to that individual. When I was privacy commissioner, a number of victims of identity theft came to me saying, we're not, we didn't do this. Uh, you know, the, the credit card companies keep saying, pay up all these charges. And then, then we said, we didn't, we didn't start those charges. That's not us. It's identity theft. And I used to help them. And the first thing I used to say to them is go to the police and file an occurrence report. So there's something to validate that you're claiming that your identity was stolen. It's a nightmare clearing your name when you've been falsely accused of something as a result of identity fraud. And facial recognition, the worst thing. So 81% is actually a conservative estimate of false positives in the UK. In Detroit, in the United States, um, they recently, the police recently did a study and they found 96%. Can you believe that? False positives. So why are you doing this? Get rid of it. And this comes back to the transparency accountability in the police use of money because if they're spending money on systems that don't work and endanger essentially endanger the public then why yeah it's like every step of this is illegitimate whether it is uh the fact that clearview exists the fact that clearview has your data um the fact that clearview can sell your access to your data through these services um, to police agencies, the fact that police agencies are seeking this type of technology and, and, and deployment. It's, it all feels so illegitimate because at no point did anybody go through the proper process of saying, um, is it okay to use this technology? Is it within our powers to use this type of technology? Does this, and, and they've skirted the whole question, does this technology actually work? They really, really have. Um, and answer something that I think kind of comes to the foundation of both this conversation, but also like PI in general. If I could just remind people, privacy forms the foundation of our freedom. If you value free and open societies, you value privacy. We have to go to great lengths to preserve it now and well into the future. That's kind of what we'd argue that without privacy, if Clearview does represent, as Kashmir Hill described at the end of privacy, then that has serious, serious concerns and um, leads to serious problems in the whole way that we live in our, our whole experience of society. Yeah, it's, it's so there, I think there are two parallel uh, tracks here that um, Anne was identifying. Uh, first, on the presumption that the systems work, uh, this is creating a horrible uh, well, it's, it's creating extraordinary power for law enforcement agencies um, and power that we cannot uh, imagine being wielded with responsibility while we maintain our democratic societies and our democratic and civic rights. And the, the other uh, parallel aspect to what she's raising is that, like all technologies, technologies are not uh, science, they're not perfect. They're matters of uh, engineering and calibration and um, error rates are inevitable. And a, can our policing systems and can, can our democratic systems accept 
uh, a fallible fallibility within technology that identifies the wrong people for the wrong crimes and society treats them um, as criminals for that period of time. In either of these narratives, um, are we as a society and our rights and uh, holding it uh, to account the powerful, none of those end well. <laughs> Uh, so either the technology works perfectly and we have uh, the end of rights as we know it, or um, the technology is actually fallible and we have the end of, uh, of due process as we know it. Um, either way, uh, yes, uh, the, the, the questions raised around this type of technology and the, the way that privacy allows you to look at these problems identifies that, yeah, this is the foundation from which we can understand what the future looks like. The good news, clearly you are leaving Canada, meaning they're not working with the police there anymore. Um, and they are offering to loot people's faces from their system. There's a form online. Uh, if you live in Canada, you can find it. We'll put the link again in the description of this episode. And it's part of a larger movement against companies like Clearview and facial recognition technology. So we spoke to Nate Wesler, who's a lawyer for the ACLU's Privacy Project, about what the ACLU have been doing. So we at the ACLU for several years now have been pushing hard on the advocacy side of our work for state and local governments and the U.S. Congress to put strict limits and, uh, and in fact, prohibitions on certain uses of face recognition technology, particularly by government agencies and the police. Uh, but even while we've been doing that, we've been uh, thinking about you know, other ways to uh, try to rein in what we see as an inherently abusive technology. Uh, and when we saw the story break about Clearview, we realized that it was a particularly pernicious version of the face recognition systems that we've been tracking across this country and across the world. Uh, and we started thinking about uh, you know, what possible legal avenues there would be. You know, one of the, the unique and particularly shocking parts of Clearview system is how it amasses its absolutely gargantuan database of face prints, uh, of biometric identifiers based on people's faces, which is that it has been sending its computer servers using software, crawling all over social media websites and the rest of the internet, uh, downloading people's photos without providing any notice, with, certainly without obtaining consent from people, uh, and then using an artificial intelligence face recognition system, scanning those images, capturing face prints, and dumping those face prints into a, a database with now more than 3 billion images, as far as we know. You know, all the parts of that process are concerning, but um, we started to think about, you know, are there ways that we can address uh, what we see as, you know, an important part of the abuse, that capture of people's face prints in huge numbers without noticing consent. Um, the United States, unlike Europe, doesn't have a comprehensive data protection law. Uh, and so it ends up for many types of data privacy being really a patchwork of protections from individual states. Uh, and it so happens that the state of Illinois, about a dozen years ago, passed a particularly strong law protecting the privacy of people's biometric identifiers. Uh, so face recognition scans, but also things like retina and iris scans, fingerprints, voice prints, uh, scans of hand geometry, and of course, scans of face geometry. Uh, and that law requires that before a private entity, a corporation like Clearview, can capture somebody's biometric identifier, including a face print, uh, that company is supposed to provide 
particular types of written notice to the person and then obtain their written affirmative consent. Uh, Clearview failed to do that with anyone over and over and over, you know, probably millions of times with Illinois residents alone. Uh, and that's a really massive violation of that law. So we started talking to individuals and organizations in Illinois. Uh, the ACLU uh, has a federated structure, so I work for the national office, but we also have affiliates in every U.S. state, including in Illinois. So we were talking to the ACLU of Illinois, uh, doing outreach to um, to other groups who had members and, and clients in the state, uh, looking to put together a lawsuit that could try to stop Clearview from continuing this bad practice, make them delete the face prints they had illegally collected from Illinois residents, uh, and make them stop capturing more in the future unless they abide by this notice and consent procedure. That lawsuit uh, in Illinois is ongoing. We don't know the result yet, but we're obviously hoping that ACLU Illinois win. But again, even if they do, it'll only really have an impact for residents of Illinois, not for everyone everywhere and not for everyone across the United States. And this just turns upside down. Again, this notion that um, you as an individual should have rights, particularly when it comes to um, your the way your police conduct themselves. Um, and yet the police are conducting themselves in such a way that they use a technology that um, undermines your rights regardless of where you are in the world and what legal regime applies. Um, and so I'm very happy to see that, well, that, that Illinois law was an incredible innovation back uh, uh, when it emerged. And it, it's wonderful to see it being used in such a way that could set a precedent um, on how companies like Clearview AI, and there are many companies who are in this space of collecting data in order to apply um, essentially machine learning and other types of uh, learning to to develop these artificial intelligence systems that then do things like make decisions about people based on these physical characteristics or other types of characteristics. So this, I hope, is just the first of many. If the ACLU win, as Nate says, hopefully the data of Illinois residents will get deleted. But Clearview builds their algorithm off that data. They don't just kind of collect the images and have and store them nicely. They use them to train a system that they then sell. They're selling access to the database, but they're also selling access to the algorithm, which was trained using the database. And if the ACLU win, um, hopefully that data gets deleted. But what happens with the algorithm? Uh, ideally, they would have to start from scratch again uh, in order to really, you know, expunge the harm of this illegal set of privacy violations, uh, which should reset uh, everything, including their trained algorithm. You know, I don't think in the United States, at least, there's much legal precedent addressing how that actually would work in practice, because you know, these machine learning algorithms, these artificial intelligence systems are relatively new, and the law, you know, legal development and common law systems proceeds relatively slowly compared to the advanced technology. So. Um, I think it really remains to be seen whether a company like Clearview will only be required by a court to delete the images in its matching database, but keep using the algorithm that was trained on those images, or whether it, in fact, has to you know, provide full relief to people by zeroing out even the, the training sets and resetting its, its system and going again. 
uh, it should have to do that. Um, and it's, um, I mean, I think it's a fundamental problem if we let companies uh, engage in massive privacy violations in order to build what they claim are accurate and precise products and then be able to keep those products running based on those privacy violations, even if they start tweaking their system going forward. That's um, That provides a very bad incentive to violate people's rights first and then try to clean it up later. And this is what's kind of a bummer. Like even if you send your, your data subject request, you send your deletion request, and even if clearly you complied, if everyone did it, if they cleared out the whole system, they'd still be left with the algorithm they built. Because as of yet, I don't think any court really totally knows how to deal with the fundamental problem, which is the algorithm. And again, Clearview isn't that special. They're special in terms of how they've got their training data. But the fundamental problem is facial recognition. And facial recognition is just dangerous. Fundamentally, we think Clearview's technology, like lots of face recognition technology, is dangerous both when it works and when it doesn't work. You know, dangerous when it works because of the potential for pervasive surveillance and tracking of people as they go about their daily lives, and dangerous when it what doesn't work because it raises very serious risks that police or corporations or other users will misidentify somebody and take action against them. Uh, and here in the United States, uh, the world learned of uh, a really troubling example of exactly that kind of an action uh, when police in the state of Michigan uh, arrested a man for shoplifting watches from a watch store uh, that he didn't commit um, based almost entirely on a, a faulty match from a face recognition system. It wasn't Clearview in that case. It was another company's system used by the Michigan State Police Force. Uh, but um, but this man, his name is Robert Williams, uh, ended up spending 30 hours in a lockup at a jail in a dirty cell, was interrogated. Was He was arrested on his front lawn in front of his wife and his two small children in full view of his neighbors. Um, really humiliated. Um, and it turned out it was because police uh, got a wrong match through a face recognition system to a, a, a grainy image from a store security camera and then went and arrested this man because they thought he did it. He had nothing to do with it. The ACLU of Michigan have filed a formal complaint on behalf of Robert Julian Borchek Williams. And we've added some links in the description if you want to find out more. And I think what's really interesting here is that in some senses, facial recognition is special, but in terms of the police relying on dubious technologies, we've been here before, and we're still here in many cases with lots of other forms of technology, like lie detectors and other things which have been proved time and time again, just don't work that well. And yet, because they're technology and because technology is obviously magic and impartial and objective, um, people tend to assume it's always right in some way that's just really... I would imagine interesting for a psychologist, but really scary and problematic. Interesting for a psychologist. That's an excellent way of putting it. I, I never thought about it that way. But yeah, we understand that in our lives and in the traditional practice of policing and prosecution, there's fallibility everywhere. And that's why we've created these burdens of proof. This is why there's all these procedures and regulations and laws that must be followed in the prosecution of people. And that, that makes it hard, <laughs> that makes it awkward, that makes it time consuming. But if some salesperson comes along and says, I've got a box, and in this box is a secret power. And that secret power means we can identify, separate the good guys from the bad guys. And we could do it in such a way you can't even question it. And it's perfect. 
psychologically, I think I can understand that we all kind of, uh, we're enticed by it because like we seek certainty, we seek the identification, identification, the separation of good guys from bad guys. And we know that the people in our midst and the people we give authority to can't necessarily do that. And so maybe technology will do a better job. For Ms. it normally doesn't. Yeah, it normally doesn't. And I don't want any listeners uh, presuming that um, this narrative against these types of companies and these types of innovations is an anti-innovation uh, attack that all technologies and all technological systems have um, fault lines. They basically have thresholds. They have ideal circumstances within uh, and conditions under which they work. But to expect a technology to work under the wild circumstances that a photo you uploaded on social media that might have been, say, 10 years ago um, can be used to identify you as a perpetrator of a crime in, a, in what is usually, a, as I said, a, a, a highly clinical, meticulous process of identifying wrongdoing in society, which is why we have police, which is why we have training, which is why we have procedures and all those types of things. With all that hard work can be done on the back of a photo you uploaded to Twitter when you were drunk 10 years ago. Well, I think that's a really good point is that we've set up a fairly complicated you know, like evidentiary threshold by under at which point you can get arrested and charged. We've set up, you know, um, long systems whereby it's really difficult to prove someone is guilty of a crime. Um, some cases it's not as difficult as it should be. In some cases it's more, whatever. Um, but we've, we've set a standard and we've set it for a really good reason, which is that um, if you are falsely accused, charged and convicted of a crime, that is deeply concerning and not something we want to happen in society we've said that that is beyond the pale and so we've set up all these very long processes and the idea is that technology comes in and magically says oh well that guy did it and circumnavigates all those processes and it's the same problem you get actually with snake oil in medicine it's not that the technology contributes whatever that would be okay um if a facial recognition system said we think maybe it's this guy and then you worked really hard to prove it is or it isn't before you then did something about it but people don't do that in this particular man's case if the police had taken this false match and investigated then potentially he would never have been arrested but they didn't they took it at face value and said oh well that's him then and went and arrested him and they were wrong and this is something that Nate went into um, in the history of policing in America. I think that facial recognition is special in how dangerous it is but there absolutely is a, a long history of police adopting forensic technologies or investigative technologies that turn out to be either complete junk or just or to have error rates that are unacceptably high. And then as we have firmly entered the technological age, there I think is, is a tremendous attractiveness to police and other government actors to adopt technologies that are sold and, and advertised as taking error and bias out of the system. Uh, and that's attractive. Um, you know, we should all strive to eliminate error and harm to, to people through policing. Uh, the problem is that over and over again, we see these systems not living up to the promises. Uh, you know, other examples that we are grappling with in this country uh, include uh, algorithmic decision-making systems that are used to uh, determine whether somebody should be held in jail before their trial or should be let out to continue their job and be with their family. 
by try purporting to predict future dangerousness. Um, those algorithms also are deeply flawed, uh, partly because they rely on bad data going in, right? They rely on training data that just reflects uh, centuries of deeply racist policing practices in this country that focus on arresting members of communities of color at far higher rates than white communities. Uh, and so now you have algorithms that are looking for totally the wrong things to determine dangerousness. Um, and it's a real struggle to convince police and the government that this tool that they think is going to make their job easier and more accurate actually is just entrenching the problems in the system. Uh, and face recognition, you know, shares all of those problems with the additional really terrifying concern that it can enable uh, a surveillance apparatus of just unrivaled efficiency in the history of humanity and the history of policing. Um, the, the specter which you in the UK, I think, are, are grappling with a little ahead of us in the United States grappling with is, you know, the possibility of hooking face recognition systems up to live video surveillance feeds uh, on networked arrays of cameras, which could result in police being able to track any of us and all of us as we go about our daily lives to a, a physician's office, to a lover's house, to work, to our child's school, wherever else. And that's a capability that is dangerous if it worked perfectly. Um, and it's dangerous in other ways if it's flawed and police end up tracking and arresting or otherwise harming the wrong person. Live facial recognition. The specter of live facial recognition haunts a lot of the discussions around facial recognition. So there are two kinds of facial recognition. One is, I think it's called static facial recognition, which is you take pictures or videos after the event and you run the algorithm on that and it looks through a database and it returns matches. Um, the other is live facial recognition, which is you're getting data relayed back to you as someone walks past. And um, that's what recently in the UK, um, I believe the um, South Wales Police Force uh, were taken to court and told they had to stop using live facial recognition in South Wales. The Met still use it, um, but they don't use it in the way Nate's talking about, which is hooking up to lots of CCTV cameras all over the city. They use it by driving a massive van up to like a protest, or they've used it repeatedly at Notting Hill Carnival, which is a massive celebration of West Indian Caribbean culture, which means it's largely communities of colour, which again have been repeatedly misidentified by these systems. So live facial recognition is really concerning and as Nate mentioned, already in use, though, as far as we know, none of those systems are Clearview's. Facial recognition is clearly serious stuff, but Clearview doesn't always treat it that way. We spoke to Ricardo, an Italian investigative journalist who's looked into Clearview, about some of the ways they've chosen to advertise their product. Uh, so they basically, uh, while contacting police officers, they were like, OK, just, just give it a try to our system and just, I don't know, uh, look for people that you know, uh, include pictures of your parents or relatives and, and see if they come up, like just to to test the system and see uh, how it works, how well it works. So there was, I think it was, this was something in a New York Times investigation. They were like, uh, uh, or, or a BuzzFeed one, I'm not sure, but they were like discussing how the, the company was trying to push uh, their software. So basically, yeah, indiscriminately using their software to search for people you know, it's, it's something dangerous. The broad point of that concern is that this is a really serious tool. It's like it's a really serious 
kind of hardcore piece of tech and just being like yeah yeah upload your mates upload your friends do whatever like is a really inappropriate way of treating it and in every surveillance system this even happened with like um the uh the the, the british intelligence agencies and it, it, it's there's always this abuse that arises around uh once you have this digital power there's always the the search for your your girlfriend, search for your girlfriend's family, and th these types of abuses always occur. Uh, so it's to to an extent, it's almost quite normal to hear that this is happening with Clearview. At least from my experience in Italy, I I usually see that when the police buys these kind of technologies, they usually do this without a, a proper check, proper accountability, proper transparency. I mean. Uh, there are definitely uh, public tenders published online, but this is not enough. In my experience, we usually arrive too late. We, we, so once they acquire the technology, once you set up the infrastructure, it's always difficult to tear it down. So what would really necessary is to have a, a public conversation before uh, buying this kind of technology. Even before setting up the public tender, we should ask First, uh, the police uh, wants to acquire this kind of technology. What does the citizens think about this? Uh, do we want to use it? Do we want to uh, actually let them use it? Because at the same time, under the GDPR, entities are required to provide uh, data protection impact assessment. So this kind of evaluation to understand if this technology could be too uh, risky for the privacy of, of the citizens is uh, an important element because basically if the data protection impact assessment says that this technology is uh, infringing on too many human rights, that technology shouldn't be bought. So basically, it also becomes a matter of public money, of how police departments spend public money. And given that we are now uh, seeing from the United States this huge uh, uprising of demands regarding defunding the police and abolishing the police. This is a, a conversation that we should start having everywhere. So how much money are our police departments spending and why aren't we talking about the technology they want to buy before they actually buy this? Okay, so this is a really important point around accountability and transparency. Essentially, if the police just can just buy whatever technology they want and then we have to discuss if that's acceptable afterwards, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot a little bit. Oh, absolutely. And to try to play it another way as well is that one police force with a lax approach to this creates a market opportunity for a company like Clearview AI to pop up to say, oh, if we collected all this data, we could sell it to this police force. And so they think, okay, there's a market here. And then they go to other police forces in order to expand their market. And all of a sudden, they companies like Clearview are shaping what it is to be a police agency anywhere across the world today because they've built this little tool that they thought would be acceptable to one police force without rules. This is why police forces need rules as to what technologies they're allowed to use or not. And that's how from there shall technology be uh, developed and, and uh, innovation shall emerge. So after all that and all those concerns, where is Clearview actually working? And who are they working with? Are they working in your country? It's surprisingly difficult to find out. In Clearview are a problem, and I don't want to undermine that point. They're a huge problem. Their business ethics are dubious. They're 
constantly accused of breaking many different data protection laws globally. For a while, they were making news every other week, um, but they're not the only problem. As Nate made clear, facial recognition itself is a significant issue, and more and more companies are following Clearview's lead. We talked to Daniel, who's an investigative journalist at Netspolitik, about a Polish organization called PIMIS. So together with my colleague, uh, Sebastian Meinig, I looked into this Polish uh, facial recognition company named PIMIS. PIMIS, according to uh, what they say, uh, have collected more than 900 million unique faces on the internet over the course of several years. And now they have built this into uh, some kind of search engine where you can upload a your own face or potentially even someone else's even though you're not meant to and then you will uh, find more uh, more pictures uh, of the same person uh, which means you can uh, use the search engine eventually to identify people uh, whose name you don't know so let's say i take a photo of someone on the street and i just uploaded it on a pim eyes and then i will probably find uh, more pictures of the same person which have been uploaded somewhere on the internet and then some data around that will help me to actually identify this person and um, also uh, in this way it kind of um, harms one's privacy because a picture of you will be enough to actually figure out who you are right so the main difference between PIMIS and Clearview is Clearview is still like a fairly private company. Outside of a subject access request for my own data, I can't upload images into Clearview and get results. Uh, the same cannot be said for PIMIS. It is the perfect tool for stalking. I had no idea about this. This is, thanks for uncovering this. Yeah, well, um, Daniel and, and Netspolitik have, done an amazingly terrifying job if you look at a company like PIMIS from a german perspective where uh, privacy uh, is has, has a great value and uh, considering the way uh, that it's being dealt with on a legal level i'm not a legal expert obviously but we've talked to people who are and what they are doing uh, is probably not legal at all right and they've still been able to do it for years even though there's the general data protection uh, regulation which is meant to keep the, keep them from uh, collecting all of these images and then analyzing them to uh, collect the biometric features PIMIS can be used by everyone, which means you don't even have to register on their website. You can just go there and uh, upload a picture of someone and then uh, you will get some search results. Until very recently, you could uh, do this from ev everywhere. Now they've basically built this kind of protection, which is meant to keep you from uploading files directly to their page, but it only works if you're in particular countries. For example, Germany, because apparently now they don't want Germans anymore to be able to upload something directly there. Uh, so you would have to use a webcam to basically um, make the picture in real time. Um, but of course, you can still trick that if you use a VPN and pretend you're in the United States, for example. So that uh, doesn't change anything at all. What's really, really interesting about PIMIS is that it's not a big company. So PIMIS claim they've scraped over 900 million pictures, and, but they're actually just two guys in the basement, which is what makes them really scary. 
that's what I find so interesting. It looks, even if we like, we can't say it for sure, but from the outside, it looks uh, like there were just two guys who built this atomic bomb in their apartments, which makes it very different from Clearview, where they had a lot of funding from people like Peter Thiel. Because uh, this showed us how little it took uh, for something so powerful to uh, to come to be. I mean, of course, perhaps these two people uh, are incredibly brilliant geniuses and no one else could do what they did. Um, but to be honest, that's not that likely. And I think if they were able to do it, other people might have been doing it as well. And there's another point regarding the way um, I think a lot of companies working with AI are operating. So AI is this kind of buzzword. I think a lot of people want to invest into it. And I think there are a lot of companies who uh, don't have uh, an entire business plan. I think at the beginning, they just try to uh, go into this direction and see what happens, uh, try to develop certain things and then see if someone might want to buy them or they will develop it for someone. So uh, I think this is basically an area where a lot of people start out by just doing something and then uh, they'll wait and see what sticks. And this is probably what happened here as well. Two people just developed this search engine, collected all of these images. And now when they would probably be at a point when they would have to think about how can we make this into a lot of money, this is when the question for the first time really seems to come up uh, regarding, is this legal at all? And I don't think it is. From what we've heard, it isn't legal. But uh, they've invested a lot into a lot of time uh, and probably own resources into this. So if these two people in Poland have been doing this for years now, how many other people might have been doing the same kind of thing in their own apartment by just writing code and trying to build uh, little things on their computer, basically? And trying to not get despondent because like I, I hated the title of their initial article um you know this whole end of privacy thing has been played uh, a number of times um and so if i wanted to take a more optimistic damning view of these things is that this idea of a of uh, a bunch of guys and it's it's often this these bunch of geniuses with a computer and with an internet connection are able to create a company and hope that company makes uh millions and billions that's such a 1990s uh narrative um and it was fun and cute the first time around and led to economic failure um and a dot-com crash uh in 2000 and then what happened after that was that we had 9-11. And then what happened after that is that we had the Arab Spring. And then now what we have happening is um, Black Lives Matters. And with all of these key moments in time, I kind of hope whether, well, first as a society, we are a little bit more wizened so that when we hear the story of two incredibly um, bright uh, and capable individuals with an idea to do something with the internet and with data. And then they do something as, 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 
as stupid as collect all this data and, and, and build an interface for free use. Um, I think as a society, we can now say, well, that's not clever. That's kind of 1990s thinking. And now we're much more wizened as people because we understand the abuse of power and we understand um, how people are harassed and stalked um, in, in today's modern world. And then the second is that I kind of would have hoped that the individuals themselves would be wizened and say, you know what, this is not a good use of our time. Or, yeah, it, it might be useful for, um, for combating terrorism. This is the classic surveillance tech narrative, which is, oh, we're just building this to combat terrorism. But there's just case after case and after case of technology developed to combat terrorism and being used for the banal and being used for the abusive and being used by the abusive. And so they should just be smarter now. Well, what's interesting, I think, about PMIs is part of their reason for justifying their existence is the internet's a dangerous place. If you upload your image into our search thing, set an alert, um, we'll notify you when a new image of you gets posted, and you can be on the lookout for things like revenge porn. And, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world, um, except for the fact that they've built a system which allows you to do far more than that. They haven't set themselves that goal and then built something that would be genuinely useful for it. They've built a huge wide ranging system that lets you upload a ton more photos than you need to for that, that lets you do all sorts of other stuff um, that would let you abuse, harass, stalk other people in a way that kind of is fundamentally against that goal, which really makes you question if that was really the point or if it's just a random justification they've pulled out of the air when people pointed out. And now, once people in Germany started asking questions, you have to upload it via webcam. But I think I think the one thing to take away from this isn't unregulated, horrible, terrible, uh, privacy-invasive technology is coming for you and your family. I think the really exciting things are things like um, the response in Canada, are things like the ACLU's lawsuit in Illinois and the Illinois law around biometrics in general. Even though it's happening more unevenly and slower than we would like, there is more and more data protection laws happening all over the world. There are movements to stop facial recognition in its tracks completely. Um, with places like Portland recently banned facial recognition hugely in a hugely sweeping kind of broad spread way. Regulation is coming for these kind of technologies and hopefully the kind of clever innovative people who are building them will catch up with the rest of the world and understand that it's not going to be like this for much longer and they don't have much time to build these kind of systems which are just dangerous you've nailed it as as, as usual you've, you've nailed it and i think 15 20 years ago if you if you were to give a talk saying what you just said um, you'd be labeled as anti-innovation, as a Luddite, and you don't understand what progress means. Um, I think we've come a long way. And kind of like as we've discussed with um, the response to COVID and the use of work, use of technology, um, we're, we're not anti-tech. We want tech to be properly and and accountably integrate in our lives in ways that empower us and um, empower institutions that we trust and who, who vie for our trust. These types of abusive uses of technology 
are going to give rise to a tech clash. Um, and we're going to, as a society, lose out on so many opportunities as a result of these insanely stupid uses of technology. Sorry, I'll stop there. <laughs> no, and um, so this podcast is part of a broader project that you can find out more about by visiting privacyinternational.org about public-private partnerships between police and other kind of government entities and private companies that allow them to circumnavigate a lot of the rules that have been put in place for people's safety and protection. But I think what's usefully consistent in, in the examples that you can read there and all throughout the project is that like those, those holes are closing. We're getting there, I guess. We are absolutely getting there. And um, again, the, the world is a very different place than it was just a few years ago. And, um, you know, there's a great case study on our website about the existence of Huawei in Uganda, for instance. And, you know, five years ago, this wouldn't have been questioned. Now, when you tell people, oh, my God, Huawei's in Uganda, then all of a sudden, like, like everybody says, well, that's just wrong. And, that, and that's, this is, if we start telling these stories more and more and, and we, we use the, the tools at our, at our fingertips, we can actually change this. So thank you for listening and Gus, thank you for letting me take over the podcast a bit. You can get involved uh, with this particular topic by visiting our website and by checking out the links below, which will hopefully uh, give you a clue on how to do DSAR and deletion requests. Uh, you can like and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you're currently listening to it. It's also available on our website at privacyinternational.org, uh, where it comes with a transcript uh, by the time that you're hearing this please come to our website it's very interesting and you can sign up to our very exciting mailings um we're also on twitter instagram mastodon youtube and facebook i think on twitter and mastodon we're at privacy int on instagram youtube and facebook and anywhere sane we're on at privacy international Music courtesy of Sepia and Glassboy, which is licensed under Creative Commons.